Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The U.S. military announced it will move 3,000 American troops to NATO member nations in Eastern Europe in response to a potential Russian invasion of Ukraine. Here's Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby on Wednesday. I want to be very clear about something. These are not permanent moves. They are moves designed to respond to the current security environment. Moreover, These forces are not going to fight in Ukraine. These movements are unmistakable signals to the world that we stand ready to reassure our NATO allies and deter and and defend against any aggression. Kirby says the move shows the U.S.'s commitment to its NATO alliance. How will Russia respond? Today, where we live, we talk about the crisis and we get context on the complicated relationship between Ukraine and Russia. Coming up, we hear from members of the local Ukrainian-American community. There are an estimated 20,000 living in Connecticut. What questions do you have? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can share a comment or question on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us first on Zoom is Alex Kuzma. He's a Ukrainian-American who lives in Wethersfield, Connecticut, and he's also the Chief Development Officer for the Ukrainian Catholic University Foundation. Alex, welcome to our show. Thank you very much, Lucy. I mentioned the Ukrainian-American population in Connecticut. Uh, Tell me about uh, this uh, community and, of course, uh, with the the news over the last uh, month or so, how everyone uh, is faring as they they watch uh, the latest updates. Thank you, Lucy. Well, certainly we're we're covering the events and and watching the events with uh, great concern and trepidation. Um, Our community is actually incredibly vibrant here in Connecticut. We have... uh, about eight uh, Ukrainian Catholic and Orthodox churches. Um, we have a very active community that's been fully engaged in our contacts with our congressional delegation, uh, especially with Senators Murphy and Blumenthal. Um, both of them have been to virtually every one of our churches uh, multiple times over the last uh, eight to 10 years. Um, and so we're, we're very grateful for the fact that both our senators visited Ukraine last month to show U.S. support and to look to get the facts on the ground. Um, we're, we're also very grateful that uh, Pope Francis called for a global day of prayer for, for peace in Ukraine. And uh, last week, uh, Archbishop Blair and our Ukrainian Catholic Bishop uh, Paul Chomnitsky uh, celebrated a special uh, prayer vigil at the Church of St. Mary uh, next to the Yale campus. Uh, to pray for peace. But our community, uh, as you mentioned, it's uh, it's quite remarkable. Uh, we have uh, very active um, Ukrainian cultural schools in Hartford and Stanford and New Haven. Uh, we've got hundreds of kids uh, studying Ukrainian language and literature and history. Um, we also have a very active, uh, a wonderful dance ensemble, Zolote Proming, based here in Hartford, uh, that has uh, 90 kids, and they've been quite uh, renowned around uh, 
around the Northeast. Uh, did a beautiful performance a few years ago at the Belden Theater that packed the hall. And then we have uh, a lot of students um, at, uh, there's an active Ukrainian students club at Yale and UConn. And uh, we've had some terrific conferences at uh, Wesleyan and University of New Haven, uh, organized, co-organized by the Ukrainian community and uh, various scholars. Um, so we're, we're very proud of the level of activity here in Connecticut. And um, we're, um, we're following events in Ukraine very closely. Tell me a little bit about your family background and, and how you got involved uh, in this work, uh, you know, to help bolster uh, economic development resources, but also educational support and humanitarian assistance over the years, Alex. Sure. Well, my parents were both uh, refugees, war refugees from Ukraine. They, they left at the end of World War II and ended up in, in uh, displaced persons camp in, in Germany. Um, I, you know, I was born here, but uh, I've been pretty active in the community since I was a kid. Um, and uh, I, I guess I, I became reenacted or re, reactivated um, in the uh, late 1980s um, after the Chernobyl nuclear disaster. Um, there was a terrific organization called the Children of Chernobyl Relief Fund. And uh, I joined them. I, I was a practicing lawyer at the time in Hartford, um, and I took a one-year leave of absence to work with them. Um, we organized a, a huge airlift out of Bradley International on the world's largest plane, which is a Ukrainian-built Antonov 225. And uh, 15 years later, that one year's leave of absence still had me working for the children of Chernobyl, and it was a great experience. And uh, now I'm working for the Ukrainian Catholic University, which is the, the, only, the first and only so far Catholic university in the former Soviet Union. And uh, we're very proud of uh, the level of generous support we've received from around, uh, not just from Connecticut, but from around the country. And uh, right now, UKU, as we call it, the Catholic University is considered the finest uh, institution of higher learning in Ukraine. So we're, we're very proud of the work that they've done in supporting democracy and political reform in the country. As we look to current events, Alex, often to understand what's happening, you have to look into the past. And so part of why we were interested in hearing from you today was to talk about this very complicated relationship between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, tell our listeners who may not be um, as well versed as you and others with connections to Ukraine, you know, some of that that history that has led to this moment. Well, it's a long and complicated history, uh, but in some ways quite simple. I mean, Ukraine has been striving for its independence and uh, freedom for over 300 years since Tsar uh, Peter uh, invaded Ukraine back in 1709 and, and uh, massacred 15,000 people at the city of Baturin, which was a, a large uh, settlement. Um, and since then, uh, Ukraine has been invaded by Russian troops uh, any number of times in uh, 1918, 1920, 1932, 1939, 1944, and then again in 2014. So the notion that Putin is trying to spread around the world that somehow Ukraine poses a threat, Ukraine has never invaded Russia, and where um, a lot of our students from our university and you know over a million people in uh, 2013, December of 2013, stood out for weeks on end in the sub-zero temperatures to defy uh, the government there, which was leaning toward Putin and leaning toward Russia. And they, uh, the people in Ukraine made it very clear that they had no intention of going back to, to Russia and that they were willing to die if necessary to, to fight for their freedom. 
Um, Lucy, just to kind of give you a sense, I, I know um, to, to give people a sense of sort of that complicated relationship, a friend of mine who lived in Ukraine for many years said that um, to understand Ukraine's relationship to Russia, it's a little bit like an abused wife of an alcoholic husband. You know, she, she's, uh, she officially divorced in 1991 when Ukraine achieved its independence. And this abusive, somewhat psychotic husband just can't let her go. <laughs> he keeps trying to, to uh, reclaim her. I can't believe that she can live on her own without, without uh, his involvement and without his abuse. And I'm not sure how apt that, uh, that comparison is, but in some ways it's true. I mean, uh, Vladimir Putin on any number of occasions has said that you know, either Ukraine is not, not even a country there's 42 million Ukrainians that live in Ukraine that would beg to differ. <laughs> and, and besides that, um, you know, this is a country that has a deep history that goes back over a thousand years, going back to the, the Christianity of, of Russia, uh, I'm sorry, of Ukraine back in uh, the year 988. And so Ukraine has uh, maintained and developed a vibrant uh, history, literature, its own literature, its own language. There are over 35 million people in Ukraine and another five million people around the world that speak Ukrainian. That's, uh, uh, you know, it's a remarkable achievement considering that the Ukrainian language was persecuted for centuries. So um, it is a complicated relationship. I, what I would say is that, uh, you know, to look at what are the true intentions of, of the Ukrainian people. In 1991, uh, Ukrainians voted by 92.3% to split away from Russia. That's about as resounding a statement, declaration of independence as you could get. And yet Putin just can't get it through his thick skull that Ukraine really, really has no interest in going back to uh, the Soviet model and has no interest in reuniting with Russia. So he's trying to, to somehow intimidate and force it to come back by force. Again, you're hearing Alex Kuzma here on Where We Live. He's a Ukrainian-American uh, living in Connecticut for many years, also Chief Development Officer for the Ukrainian Catholic University Foundation. As we talk about uh, this crisis at Ukraine's borders uh, with uh, anywhere between 100,000 to 130,000 Russian troops uh, being deployed there, also uh, weapons and other military equipment. The other day, the United States announcing it's sending or moving, rather, 3,000 American troops to a NATO alliance uh, nations in Eastern Europe. And so, Alex, when you hear that, do you anticipate that an invasion is possible, or is this more of, of Putin and the games that he plays? It's very tough to tell how serious he is. I mean, the fact is there is already a war going on. He invaded in 2014, and there are already 14,000 people that were killed in eastern Ukraine as a result of bombings, you know, direct attacks, military attacks. What's interesting is that in, in 2014, when Putin invaded, he thought it was going to be a cakewalk. He thought he was going to walk into the eastern part of the country where there are more people that tend to be Russian speakers, and he somehow thought that they were going to rally to his side. I think he should have been bitterly disappointed by the reaction because um, even though Ukraine at that time had a very tiny army, only 6,000 troops, um, they were able to mobilize uh, volunteer brigades that were at that time poorly armed, poorly trained, and yet they beat back his mercenaries and beat back his regular troops and they beat back um, even his Spetsnaz, his specialty forces. And um, so he, as a, as a student of history, Putin should realize that Ukraine is uh, is not going to be an easy target for him to invade because the people there are now really mobilized against him. 
um, Ukraine, it's, I think it's important to, to note that in 30 years of independence, since 1991, Ukraine has bent over backwards to prove its commitment to peace around the world. When, when Ukraine became independent, it was the third largest nuclear power in the world. It had more nuclear weapons than India, more nuclear weapons than, than any other country besides the United States and Russia. It, it disbanded that entire nuclear arsenal in order to show its commitment to peace in exchange for an agreement in 1994 called the Budapest Accords, by which the United States, Western Europe, and Russia itself guaranteed that they would not violate Ukraine's borders. And since then, Ukraine has maintained amazingly friendly and healthy relations with all of its neighbors, Turkey, Poland, Slovakia, Belarus, the Baltic countries. Um, so the only country that has a problem with Ukraine is Russia. And the notion that Putin is trying to push into the Western media that somehow Ukraine is the provocateur this, in this thing as he's mobilizing 150,000 troops is just absurd on its face. So it's really important for the West to stand up to Putin, not to give in to his uh, political blackmail and military blackmail. You know, a lot of commentators have been worried saying, well, you know, these talks between the US and Russia uh, have failed. It's not a failure. <laughs> and in some ways, no deal is a good deal for the United States and for Ukraine, because you're not coming to appeasement of Putin's military blackmail. And we should reiterate um, the U.S. Uh, saying it will not bow to Russia's demands that NATO close its open door policy, barring uh, Ukraine uh, from joining uh, the military alliance. Uh, let's talk more about what's happening on the ground in Ukraine. The New York Times reporting uh, that the Ukrainian military training residents in urban warfare. We're talking about factory workers, teachers, economists, accountants to help defend the country, uh, recruiting 130,000 civilians if there is an invasion. They're called the Territorial Defense Force. Uh, the training they're receiving, firearm training, first aid, and to identify explosives. Uh, what's your reaction to that? As you mentioned, um, you know, there has been a conflict since uh, 2014, especially on the eastern side. In many ways, what's happening in Ukraine right now, um, first of all, I, I think a lot of commentators have, have uh, made mention of the fact that the Ukrainians have been amazingly stoic and calm during this military buildup. Um, Ukrainians have seen this movie before. They know what Russia is capable of, but they are fundamentally determined to counter Russia's aggression. And to me, it, it reminds me of what happened, even though I wasn't alive then, <laughs> but it reminds me of, of what happened, for instance, when Russia invaded Finland in 1939 and 1940. Joseph Stalin, who, by the way, is a role model for Putin, um, thought that he was going to just be able to waltz into Finland and take this small country over. The Finns fought him tooth and nail and embarrassed him to the point where they basically beat back the Russian army. And um, it was similar in Norway when the Nazis invaded Norway. I mean, the, they basically had civil defense forces that fought the Nazis to a standstill. And if Putin thinks that he had a tough time in 2014 when he was beaten back by a ragtag army of volunteers, and I mean, just to give you a sense, Lucy, of just how passionate the Ukrainians were in, in this battle, um, one of the pitch battles happened in, at the Donetsk airport um, in far eastern Ukraine. 
there were a group of soldiers there, Ukrainian soldiers that became known as the cyborgs because they held out for 283 days against shelling, bombing with very poor supply lines back into main main, uh, line Ukraine. I mean, it was really like the Ukrainian Alamo (laughs) and they finally were defeated. But after 283 days, the Alamo lasted for 13 days. And so the Ukrainians are like incredibly proud of this sort of heritage of David versus Goliath. They're, they're capable of fighting. And as the late Colin Powell would say, you know, uh, the, the passion that a people feel for defending their country is a force multiplier. And so when, when you mentioned the, the civil defense forces, um, you know, there were, there were little old ladies, I mean, Babti, as we call them, little, you know, grandmas in the city of Mariupol that were digging anti-tank trenches, um, during the 2015 so he's going to be facing a population that is a hundred percent against his machinations and um, he's going to have hell to pay if he invades and i think if he's smart if he's as smart as he thinks he is um he will back down and this is going to be just a ploy and he's going to back away from the troops and and uh and leave ukraine in peace you're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. My guest again, Alex Kuzma, a Ukrainian-American who lives in Wethersfield. He's also Chief Development Officer for the Ukrainian Catholic University Foundation. As we talk about uh, what's happening uh, overseas, we're going to keep talking with Alex after the break. What questions do you have about Ukraine and Russia? You can join us too, 888-720-9677. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking to local Ukrainian-Americans as the world waits to see what Russian President Vladimir Putin does next. Ukraine first got an alert about a potential Russian military operation in November. And then over the last month or so, Russia began sending troops and military equipment to the Ukrainian border and now has between 100,000 to 130,000 troops surrounding the country on all sides. Just yesterday, the U.S. announced it was moving 3,000 American soldiers to NATO member nations in Eastern Europe, but making clear this group would not go into Ukraine. Connecticut's U.S. Senators Richard Blumenthal and Chris Murphy met with Ukrainian president recently as part of a Senate delegation, and Senator Murphy spoke on Wednesday on MSNBC's Morning Joe about the recent developments. Here's what he said. 
But I do think Putin may be getting better, more accurate advice right now. Our worry was that in the early stages of this crisis, he was holed up in a bunker in Sochi, being told that he was going to be greeted as a liberator if he entered Ukraine. Of course, nothing could be further from the truth. Ukraine is a fundamentally different country than it was 10 years ago. There is a patriotism in Ukraine that is, um, uh, it's always been there, but it is certainly at an elevated uh, height right now. So he'll have a fight on his hands for the long run if he enters the country. I think it's more likely that analysis of how bad that insurgency is going to be. And yes, we are also telegraphing to him that if he stays home, if he doesn't bring his troops in, then he won't have 8,000 additional American troops on eastern on the eastern flank of NATO. And maybe he's considering that as an upside of keeping his troops where they are as well. We're talking about what's happening in Ukraine and to Ukraine with Alex Kuzma, Ukrainian-American who lives in Wethersfield. He's chief development officer for the Ukrainian Catholic University Foundation. If you're a member of the Ukrainian-American community, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Alex, talk about the U.S. response so far. In many ways, we've been very grateful for the response of um, the U.S. Congress. I mean, at a time when there's not a lot of bipartisanship in Washington, um, you know, the, the U.S. Uh, House of Representatives voted overwhelmingly in support of sanctions and, and military aid to, to Ukraine. I think there were only five Congress members of Congress and two members of the Senate that voted against it. So, you know, we have really strong support in Congress and very strong support for the U.S. State Department. Um, the ambassadors and U.S. State Department staff that have lived in Ukraine basically fell in love with the country. They kind of went native almost, as people would like to say. So we have enormous support. What we are lacking, I think, is individualized sanctions against individual oligarchs that are supporting Putin's imperial ambitions. Um, you know, Lana Babi will talk about this more late, later about, you know, the Holodomor and the history of genocide in, in Ukraine by the Russian uh, troops uh, during the, the Stalin era. But the fact is that the United States should not be pampering um, oligarchs that are supporting Putin's agenda um, in terms of aggression against Ukraine. And a lot of these guys, you know, if they really care about Russia, if they really want to support Russia, why are they parking all their money in Western Europe and, and buying up villas in London and, and uh, Cyprus and other places. I mean, the fact is that, you know, Vladimir Putin has as assembled, he's amassed vast sums of money from his own people to enrich himself and his oligarchs. You know, this is a guy who builds a $4 billion palace for himself in Crimea while his people are living in hovels and, you know, crumbling Khrushchev era, they call them Khrushchevki, they're <laughs> Khrushchev era, um, high-rise uh, apartments. I mean, he doesn't care about his own people. What what Putin fears is not any kind of military attack from Ukraine. What he fears is the potential and already the, the growing reality that Ukraine is going to become a successful, democratic, economically viable country. That's what freaks him out. And he said so. He said what, what scares him are the so-called color revolutions. So the orange revolution in Ukraine in 2004, when Ukrainians mobilized over a million people to protest against his attempts to install a puppet regime under Viktor Yanukovych. And he fears the Georgians, um, the Rose Revolution there. So he's afraid that if Ukraine is allowed to prosper and to go the way of Poland and the Baltic countries, I mean, the reason why the Ukrainians in 2014 mobilized uh, this mass movement in favor of the European Union is they looked at what happened in Poland and Lithuania. I mean, Lithuania, after they joined the EU, 
their GDP started growing in leaps and bounds, 9%, 11% growth rate. And, you know, the Ukrainians are not stupid. They said, we, that's what we want to have. We want to have a, a thriving economy. And uh, Lucy, one thing I just wanted to mention is that, you know, the way that Putin has tried to position Ukraine or to depict it is it's some kind of economic, you know, e- economic wasteland. And we're very angry with uh, some columnists like Ross Douthat from, from the New York Times and, and Tucker Carlson, who are trying to portray it also as some kind of a country that's a wasteland. Nothing could be further from the truth. Ukraine is one of the, the most powerful producers of food in the world. It's, it's among the top five exporters of wheat, maize, corn, soy, um, uh, sunflower oil in the world. And it's actually feeding, I mean, hundreds of millions of tons of food that Ukraine exports every year. It is not only a breadbasket for Europe, it's a breadbasket for the world. And so the world has a stake in supporting Ukraine, not only in terms of the human rights posture and the security posture, but because of food security around the world. And the other thing that, that's so tragic, even, even if Putin doesn't invade, it's already tragic that thousands of young, brilliant Ukrainian men and women have to waste their time you know, sitting in frozen bunkers in eastern Ukraine when they are actually trying to get educated, trying to develop a better country. And, um, you know, they, a lot of people don't realize that Ukrainians, uh, Ukrainian engineers, when left to their own uh, passions and devices, are, have been among the, the leaders in developing technologies that we all take for granted today. You know, whether it's Igor Sikorsky or Steve Wozniak, you know, the co-founder of Apple. Um, these, are, these are brilliant people, and the world would benefit from letting them operate and develop in peace rather than invaded by, by a crazed aggressor. So we know now that the U.S. has, has supplied or is supplying Ukraine with weapons to defend um, itself and also seeking to reassure its allies in Eastern Europe that it will fulfill its treaty obligation to defend them um, if they are attacked. And we know that Ukraine is not yet a NATO member, and so the U.S. Does, has no treaty obligation to come to its defense. And so besides sending weapons and also, as you mentioned, uh, looking for increased sanctions, that's all the U.S. C- can do right now, Alex? Well, President Zelensky in Ukraine has said that, you know, we're not asking for boots on the ground. We will defend ourselves. We're not asking for the U.S. to commit troops. What we do need is we need defensive weapons, um, especially things like anti-aircraft batteries. I mean, you you can't invade Russia with anti-aircraft batteries. It's only if Russia invades Ukraine that you need anti-aircraft and you need communication and, and command and control centers and javelin missiles that can at least blunt an attack by by Russian tanks. So, and the U.S. has begun to step up. Um, we're grateful. Our community is very grateful that, that that's happened. Um, but the other way that to help Ukraine really is to support civil society. Um, you know, Lucy, in contrast to Russia, where Putin has tried to basically squelch any kind of civil society or independent organizations, in Ukraine, there are hundreds of, of non-governmental organizations, social service agencies that are voluntarily based, Ukraine has one of the most uh, pluralistic religious communities in the world. I mean, the Jewish community has gone through a spectacular renaissance in cities like Dnipro and Berdychy. The Crimean Tatar community is very supportive of Ukraine. You've got Christians, Muslims, and Jews that are working together, and they were all together on the Maidan during the 2014 revolution. 
Um, and I've, you know, I've met with Rabbi Yaakov Bleich, um, who's the former chief rabbi of Ukraine. There were hundreds, if not thousands, of, of Jewish citizens of Ukraine. And, you know, while Putin is trying to portray Ukraine as a fascist state, the fact is that, you know, Ukraine elected Volodymyr Zelensky, who is a man of Jewish heritage, by 73% of the electorate. There's only 1% of the population is Jewish. So, you know, this is not some kind of biased, bigoted, or fascist country. This is a country that really respects ethnic and religious pluralism and is prepared to defend that kind of pluralism against the autocracy that, that Putin is pro proposing. You mentioned uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky. I wanted to get your response. Uh, you know, he told President Biden and other world leaders to, to turn down uh, the impending uh, invasion rhetoric. And I'm wondering if you can talk about the impact on the Ukrainian economy today. I mean, the economy has taken a hit as well as the economy in Russia has taken a hit um, because markets don't like instability. And so it's understandable. Um, and and uh, I think President Zelensky is right. There's no reason to hype up the rhetoric. If you if Russia invades, Ukraine is ready for it, for an invasion. And David is happy to take on Goliath in that situation. Well, we're not happy. Ukraine is not happy to do it. But Ukraine will defend itself to the hilt. But yeah, there is. Um, I, I think it is important um, to tamp down the rhetoric to some degree and not to treat an invasion as a foregone conclusion. Um, so I, I think you know, Zelensky is right. The other way that I think the United States can really help is really supporting um, these various uh, grassroots initiatives, uh, civil society programs. Those are the engines of reform and anti-corruption in Ukraine that can uh, get a lot more traction. And I remember when I worked for the Children of Chernobyl, we were begging uh, USAID and other agencies to be more forthright in providing uh, serious financial support to those groups as opposed to uh, just providing money to, to government agencies where where the money could be much more easily siphoned off and, and gone into corrupt uh, channels. Uh, you mentioned that as we talk about uh, whether or not Putin will uh, invade, you know, he in the past, he's shown, you know, he's also interested in the long game, right? So, you know, how long could these Russian troops be on the border? Is he more interested in a hybrid strategy? And so thinking about other ways to provoke instability like cyber attacks, um, like uh, uh, Europe's uh, reliance on Russia for oil and gas. Uh, what do you think, Alex? Absolutely. Uh, Lucy, I think it's important to note that P Putin is a strategic thinker, and he, I, I wish he wasn't as clever as he is in some ways. We have to be honest with ourselves. Um, but he is, you know, the irony with, with Putin is this is a guy that knows how to project his own evil on his, on his adversaries. Um, he has been working with ideologues like Pieskov and, and Alexander Dugin to develop a whole master plan that's gone on for, for decades um, to destabilize Europe. I mean, it's ironic when he calls Ukraine fascist, where, you know, you have this beautiful, you know, pluralistic society. I mean, Putin himself has been pumping amazing amounts of money into right-wing extremist parties in Europe, in France, Marine Le Pen, in Germany, in Austria in Netherlands, in Greece, in Denmark, in Sweden. In Sweden, the far right got 17% of the vote. In Ukraine, as our friend Trudy Rubin, who writes for the Philadelphia Inquirer, pointed out, in Ukraine, the far right got only 1%, 1.5% of the vote in the 2014 election, and they lost 
they lost even more votes in the 2019 election when Zelensky was was elected. So you compare, where are the fascists? The fascists are the ones that are being supported by Putin's uh, largesse in pumping vast amounts of money. And frankly, you know, we've also seen from uh, from recent history that Putin is also not uh, beyond pumping a lot of money into the United States. You know, we saw Paul Manafort, the, the evil native son of, of Connecticut that uh, received $17 million in bribes from a, a pro-Russian oligarch like Oleg Deripaska in order to penetrate, literally, that's what he signed up for. He was going to penetrate the American political system, and he did. And so we have to be very cautious as to Putin is a diabolical guy. He's very clever. He knows how to play the long game, and he has the advantage that he lives in a, in a country where he's effectively president for life. So he can play the long game in a way that, that um, in a democratic society, we have a hard time uh, keeping up with him. But uh, we, we have to recognize who he is. I mean, this is a guy who feels that Joseph Stalin is his role model. Imagine if Angela Merkel or Gerhard Schroeder started saying, you know, Hitler wasn't such a bad guy. You know, we should, uh, we should be, you know the the whole world would be up in arms putin has been saying for 20 years that stalin a man who murdered millions of his own people and millions of ukrainians this is a mass murder of gargantuan scale he thinks that that guy should be a role model worth venerating by the russian people mm. and that's a tragedy for russia because the ukrainians are not going to fall for that nonsense mm. but it's a tragedy for russia that that their people are being brainwashed to believe that this monster is somebody worth emulating. We need to take a quick break. Again, you're hearing Alex Kuzma here on Where We Live, a Ukrainian-American who lives in Weathersfield, also Chief Development Officer for the Ukrainian Catholic University Foundation. Alex, you've mentioned Stalin a few times, so this is a uh, good time to mention. Coming up after the break, we're going to learn about the Holodomor, which killed millions of Ukrainians under the Soviet Stalin regime in the early 1930s. You can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're learning more about the complicated history between Ukraine and Russia as the world watches what happens next at Ukraine's border, where more than 100,000 Russian troops are deployed and concern continues over a potential Russian invasion. Now, in the early 1930s, millions of Ukrainians were killed under the Soviet Stalin regime, but many people today may not be aware of this event known as the Holodomor. Joining us now on Zoom is Alana Babi, who's a retired librarian from the University of Connecticut. Now she is an independent researcher and she lives in Manchester. Lana, welcome to our show. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you, Lucy. So tell us about the Hola Domor and what happened. Well, you know, very briefly, it, the Hola Domor refers to a genocide that was perpetrated against the people of Ukraine by Stalin's Soviet regime in the early 1930s, as, as you introduced. Um, and for those who know already or know just a little bit, you know, its most notable feature was massive starvation. Um, and as somebody that I know described it very well, it wasn't that people 
died of starvation. They were starved to death. Between 1932 and 1934, at least 4 million Ukraine residents uh, out of a population of some uh, 30 million were starved to death. And incredibly, 2 million people within a period of only three months in 1933 uh, died. This is demographically almost unprecedented and is further proof of the fact that this was an intentional uh, genocide. Now, the purpose of this uh, was not to physically annihilate the entire population of Ukraine. Um, it was rather to destroy in part uh, a national group through a variety of means as described in the UN Genocide Convention adapted in 1948. Now, starvation did the killing part. It did the bodily and mental harm. It prevented births. Uh, but to paraphrase Raphael Lemkin, and he was the one who defined genocide and called what happened in Ukraine a perfect example of, of genocide, uh, there was a, a multi-pronged approach that affected uh, the entirety of the national group. Um, Stalin and his followers were determined to teach the Ukrainian people a lesson that they would not forget for desiring independence during the period of the Russian Revolution, which was only, you know, a little more than 10 years earlier. Alex, uh, as uh, Lana talks about this forced famine, uh, or known as the Holodomor, where uh, millions of Ukrainians were killed, this grew out of Stalin's collectivization uh, policy related to agriculture. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, Lana's much more of an expert on this than I am, but um, I was just going to mention to your listeners that if they wanted to, to read a, an excellent book on this is by Anna Applebaum. It's called The, the Red Famine, Stalin's War on Ukraine. Um, and uh, it's, it's really um, a chilling book because it shows just how methodically the Soviet authorities, you know, led by Stalin, Kaganovich, uh, Postashev, and others, basically confiscated, en masse confiscated, um, the Ukrainian harvest in 1932 and 33 blocked humanitarian shipments and then shipped a lot of this grain that was desperately needed for these starving Ukrainians, shipped it overseas to develop hard currency for, for his industrialization program. It, it's really just an appalling history, and it really needs to be um, exposed to the world much more uh, dramatically. Um, Putin has now admitted that, there, yes, there was a famine, but he denies that... Uh, it was a genocide. As, as Lana pointed out, you know, Raphael Lemkin, who um, was the attorney that um, led the campaign for the United Nations Genocide Convention, he, he defined this as a classic case of genocide because, first of all, the, the Soviets um, basically tried to destroy the, the intelligentsia. They, they murdered and exiled most of the clergy, most of the, the religious leaders in the country. And then systematically just try to um, block out, um, you know, to basically they just cold-heartedly starved out, uh, you know, 3.9 million at the low end and possibly as many as 10 million uh, people um, in, in these purges. You mentioned, Alex, that um, the world needs to be made aware of what happened. Um, there's been debate about uh, whether or not that this is a genocide. Can you talk about that? Well, the way that Lemkin defined genocide is the intention in whole or in part to um, destroy a people. It doesn't mean that you have uh, the, the class, the, the most classic case, of course, is is the Holocaust, where Hitler clearly tried to just exterminate the entire Jewish population of Europe. 
in this case, Stalin, it, it was a little bit different in the sense that Stalin wanted to murder millions of people to, to teach the Ukrainians a lesson that they should not resist his uh, plans. Um, but he, he wanted to leave enough Ukrainians browbeaten and traumatized so that they would still work the land and create these collectivized farms that would feed you know, the Soviet cities. Um, so there's, I mean, when I look at it, and, and people should read this book by Applebaum and decide for themselves whether this was a genocide or not. I mean, there were there were Bolsheviks that, that were part of the, the commissariat that, that um, was part of this whole campaign that committed suicide because they were so trauma traumatized by what they had been forced to do and seeing you know children dying in the streets and in the fields um, as a result of this kind of mm. just completely cold-blooded policy. I mean, you know, you look at the Rwandan genocide was about a million people. Armenian genocide was a million people. Bosnia is considered a genocide w with hundreds of thousands. In Ukraine, at a minimum, we're talking about 3.9 million people. And this was part of a pattern of crushing Ukrainian national spirit and Ukrainian national resistance that stems back from, you know, Tsar Peter in, in the early 1700s. I mean, as far as the parallels go, um, when you're looking at somebody, again, who admires Stalin, the perpetrator of the whole of the war, in, in Vladimir Putin, this is a guy who, um, you know, we've got to remember, he built his whole career around deceit and lies and violence. Um, this is a guy who thinks that poisoning your political opponents with uh, polonium, plutonium, and dioxin is a normal form of statesmanship. And this is absolutely in keeping with the Stalin playbook. And so you've got, um, and, and when Putin unleashed his um, army of quote-unquote mercenaries and biker gangs into eastern Ukraine to try to create this phony Novorossiya type of pseudo-republic, um, the war crimes that were committed and are still being committed in eastern Ukraine, even without a broader invasion, the war crimes are absolutely staggering. The, the, the torture, the mutilation of POWs, the murder of Crimean Tatar activists. This follows the same pattern that happened in Chechnya in uh, in, uh, 2000, in the early 2000s. By the Russians' own estimates, they slaughtered about 160,000 people by by you know bombing the city of Grozny. So you know these are not normal these these are not normal um, rules of engagement in in any kind of a war. And, you know, Putin would like to be treated as some kind of a normal person. But the fact that he's sitting on top of, you know, vast reserves of natural gas and oil does not make him any more civilized or any less barbaric than these than these war crimes would indicate. We just have a couple of minutes left, Alex. And uh, again, we appreciate all the perspective that you've been able uh, to share with us this hour. And I have to ask if you if you still have family in Ukraine, how worried are you? I, I do have family, mostly in Western Ukraine. So they're, you know, they would not be likely affected by this. But one of my nephews who's 26 years old, um, was recently wounded. I mean, he's a lieutenant in the Ukrainian army. He was out in Donetsk. Um, he was wounded during a mortar attack. He's rehabilitating now, but he's planning to go back to the front lines because he wants to defend his family. He's got two little, little babies. And so, yeah, it's, and, and I have, uh, Lucy, I've got, dear friends in eastern Ukraine. I mean, there's some beautiful programs out there, like my friend Yuri. I'm not going to use his last name, so he's not in danger. But 
you know, they've created a program that was sponsored by Ukrainian Catholic University alumni called Building Ukraine Together after the invasion started. And they've been rebuilding houses that were damaged in the fighting and creating like community centers where young people can gather um, to get away from the pressures of war. I mean, there's some beautiful programs happening out there. They're, they're trying to rebuild their country and Putin just doesn't want to see that happen. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a lot of tragedy um, already um, even with this limited war um, that has devastated Eastern Ukraine. And I'm, I'm sorry that Lana wasn't able to join us because she's, she's really a magnificent person who, who knows a lot more about the whole of the war. But no, this is, this is a pattern. And again, uh, I, I think it's really important for the world to recognize that Ukraine is much more valuable to the world as a breadbasket that can produce vast amounts of grain and foodstuffs. We're dealing with a world that has major food insecurity right now. Countries like Yemen and Ethiopia, they're going through famine. Ukraine, if it's left to its own devices, and if it's incredibly productive and efficient farmers can continue to produce food for the world, that's going to be a lot more valuable than, than some little vassal state similar to North Korea, where um, you know mm. Putin can, can feel like a, a big czar that he's, he's mm. dominating another country. Uh, and, I mean, he's got eight time zones worth of territory isn't that empire enough even for a, a, an imperialist like this it's um, you know it's just staggering but anyway that, yeah, that's kind of a perspective we appreciate again your time today and unfortunately we're we're out of time alex kuzma again ukrainian-american living in weathersfield also alana bobby joined us so who lives in manchester today's show produced by test terrible i'm lucy nalpathanchel we thank you for listening it's also connecticut public radio's short winter member membership drive here are two of my colleagues to tell you how to support the station <laughs>